0: My name is David Kleinard. I'm just a simple guy who, uh, back in college, my freshman year in college, that's why I'm so excited to, that this is the Sunday I'm up here to share scripture. Um, my head knowledge of Jesus Christ and and belief that he was born of a virgin, that he suffered and died and rose again, I believe that from childhood on. But in my freshman year at Michigan State University, uh, through a ministry that was happening there, um, I said yes to Jesus, and I invited him in, and he became forever the hope in my heart. So um, I am just thrilled to uh, see you Colby students. I know there's other students from Thomas uh, Community College, elsewhere, Maybe uh, you only come home for vacations and so on from further away. Uh, but the ministries that are happening on campus are so incredibly vital. And I I just urge you to ramp up your prayers for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at Colby <clears throat> for the student leaders. Uh, college can be a transform- transformative place and it can also be a dark place so students uh, don't slack off um, depend on one another pray for each other and uh, god's going to do great things not only at colby but at other colleges god bless you this morning um I come in the steps of the Apostle Paul, who said, uh, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. (laughs) That was just so I wouldn't squint. Um, We're going to be, at uh, Pastor Tom's suggestion, uh, backing up a couple of verses that were used last week because they pertain so much to the Scriptures The rest of the scripture that I will be reading to you this morning. And you'll also notice as I read, uh, the word therefore pops up a couple of times. And you know that if there's a therefore, you have to go back and see what the therefore is there for. So uh, we start at Ephesians 5, verse 11, and move our way up through 21. And it goes this way. Take no part One another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Oh, God bless you for doing that at Colby to each other. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of the reverence for Christ.
1: David. David is a quiet and steady presence in my life over the years and in recent years a very quiet encouragement to me sends me that that uh, boost when I need it most not that he knows that and uh, so I really appreciate that and his diligent heart in the uh, in the concern and prayers for college students as well is is evident so thank you for for doing our reading this morning. I also just want to Kind of give a quick shout out, like Pastor Tom said. The the stories coming back from the Women of Faith retreat is is just overwhelming, and um, I know that because when my wife came home and needed to talk to me, she took two hours to explain it all. Well, not even all of it, just the parts that I would kind of say, "Okay, I'm still here with you." But if you know, if you've it does, it, you know um, heard Chris Small ever tell a story, she can tell it like it's the first time she heard it. Or she'll laugh just as hard of a joke she's told now twenty times of something funny that happened, and so again I go through all the the happy tears, and it's like I was really there. So and I didn't have to do a facial and you know all the other things that you. No, I don't know what ladies do when they go. That's so I know so sexist, isn't it? <laughs> Stick to the notes, Brent. That's the you know, it's my New Year's resolution. I also want to uh, just encourage you. I know we've said a lot about college students. Well, you guys are getting all the attention today. My goodness. But, uh, I really just want to encourage those of you that might feel like, Hey, you know, I don't know how to enter that world. I don't know if they would be, um, you know, appreciative of my attempts to reach out to them or pray for them or to invite them over or something. Take it from me. They're very gracious people. They will laugh at dad jokes, Right? The stupid things that I say and they still think it's, you know, I don't know if they think it's funny, but they make me think they think it's funny. And, uh, they're very appreciative that way. And, uh, for somebody who's not that smart, you know, they kind of let me into their world as well and I'm not intimidated by their intellectual heights that you guys are probably way smarter than I am and you, I would never get that feeling from the way you treat me. So I appreciate it. But please don't, um, Keep yourselves from getting to know them. They're really incredible people and very warm and encouraging. And, and, and as a student, when I was, you know, back in my day, when I was a student, um, you know, I went to school in Boston, and so uh, I wasn't that far from home, but I was living in a dorm, and the creature comforts or the comforts of home were not there. I had a bed, and I had meals, and I was taken care of, but that sense of being invited over to somebody's home... And sitting in their living room with just lamp lighting and a hot meal and all that kind of stuff It was just it was very restorative to my soul in that time So so don't think you don't have anything to offer. That is not the case. That is not the truth So engage and enter in and and be blessed as much as you'll be a blessing to them um, I want to while i'm just doling out the thanks it is that time of year Right? We're getting ready for Thanksgiving. I, I just want to thank Jeremy Jones for coming up here and sharing a message with us last week so faithfully, so courageously. Um, many of you tell us, I don't know how you guys could ever get in front and see, and then we see more and more faces every week, it seems. I don't know how you can do that in the whole public speaking thing. So that by itself is difficult. But then actually jumping into a series that we're doing, like, um, in Ephesians, And kind of knowing how to strike that tone and where it's going and all that stuff is very difficult... And I really appreciate Jeremy taking on that challenge. We believe in expository preaching here at Faith, and so we invited him to be a part of that rotation and to take the next text. And uh, without hesitation, he said, yep, I'm in. Let's do it. And uh, Jeremy's a busy guy. He's got a busy job, a young family, some sports activities and other things, and still found the time to uh, prepare something that was a blessing to us last week. So I do appreciate that and look forward to hearing more from him as time goes on. Um, but it's a struggle to, to, to preach God's word the way it should be preached, not claiming to do that by the way, but it's a struggle to get there. It's a struggle to understand what the scriptures are actually saying to us. And it takes time to wrestle that out. And the other pastors on staff, you know, they do an incredible job of saying, okay, I'm going to block off the time and figure out and dig because we don't want to just come up here and treat the word of God lightly. We don't want to just extract the things that are our hobby horses that we can get on. You'll notice in our text today, right in the middle of our paragraph, it says, don't be drunk with wine. I mean, how many sermons could I come up with, right? That's all about that and then promote our CR ministry and all these kinds of things. But that isn't the most essential point of the text that we're going through today. So it takes some intention and some research and some study to do that. And so I'm thankful to our whole teaching team because they take the time and the care to do that. But why is that the case? Why is that the stress? It isn't so much about, well, I don't want to get up in front of people. It's more the fear or the stress of, I don't want to get it wrong. You know, I know Pastor Tom, Pastor Gary, Jeremy, all have expressed the same thing. I want to give something that's useful so that you can take it away and actually see that God's word is applicable for everything you're going through. Absolutely everything. There isn't an issue or a season in your life that God's word doesn't address. It doesn't say it specifically. It doesn't tell us how to fix the car. It doesn't tell us how to make the meal. But it gives us um, hope and it gives us a foundation for all the things in life that we are facing. And so we want to be careful to extract that from the scriptures and to present that boldly. And that's difficult to do, but I think it's the metaphor, if you will, or the the illustration I would use for the reason why Paul wrote the way he did in our text today. Because a very consistent theme in Paul's writings is for you and I to live for Christ intentionally. Intentionally. Rather than being passive and rather than just taking what comes and hope I get through and hope I can keep a smile on my face. Paul comes at it from a a bit more aggressive standpoint that we go after these things that we don't just expect that our growth or or our promise or our hope is going to come just from sitting and absorbing through osmosis. That it comes from a wrestling, a wrestling with our flesh, a wrestling with the will of God and saying, what does he have for me in this? It's much more by design. It's much more by intention. And Paul has brilliantly laid out for us the reasons why we can and we should live this way. He's been saying to us all along that if we don't uh, come after the Lord, if we don't go after his will for us with intention, then we will keep stumbling in the dark. We'll be banging our head on the brick wall. Remember in chapter 4, he used the word futility. The futility of their minds and the literal image is just going and bashing your head because over and over and over you got to restart. you got to learn from your mistakes and, and just barely hanging on. That's what happens when we don't live by intention for the Lord. But on a positive standpoint, he says the reason why we can and should live this way is because we've been given all the resources to actually pull it off. And we can live knowing that it actually puts a smile on God's face. You know, so many people would say they don't believe in God because they don't know that anything they have or do or could produce would even make him happy. Much more convenient to think he doesn't exist rather than to wrestle with whether or not he's okay with my life. But living for the Lord and walking in his will is a promise and a guarantee that it actually puts a smile on God's face. Who else can say that? Paul is saying that we live this way and we can live this way so that others will benefit from our efforts. We're going to get very specific about this as we move forward in chapter five in a couple of weeks, especially when we talk about the dynamics of a family and how we put all of these concepts to use in the most basic and local area of our lives. So today's text, though, is calling us to live soberly in our thinking and actions. Now, I'm just letting you know, you're going to be sick of the fact I'm going to say diligence all the time. That's the word that's going to be on repeat this morning. Diligence, diligence, diligence. There, I got five of them out of the way. You say, no, you just said it three times, but I said it twice before, then I'm counting. Why do we need all this? Well, after a long shutdown, if anybody remembers that. Or if anybody noticed that we're in a turbulent political environment, that we have rising inflation, we have all these other things that are going along on a national and global landscape that we can't make sense of and we can't control. But then we also have the whole swarming stew or hornet's nest of mess in our own local lives that maybe other people in this room wouldn't even know about. And it's the thing you've got to face every time you leave this room. All of these things make it too tempting for us to give in to the call of comfort or this idea of what feels safer. And it tempts us to jump on the conveyor belt of worldly escapes. Just be a lot easier if we could just check out, not deal with this. Diligence sounds like a lot of work. But what we understand is that futility comes back and creeps into our life and we discover that we're starting to live a life of utter uselessness by ignoring the reality of the situation in which we live. So assuming that we're here because we want to actually make something out of our lives, that we actually want to put a smile on God's face. And I have that assumption because who else comes to church on a day like today? Who else comes to church in an environment like we have today? Other than people who are asking the question, Lord, what do you have for me? How can I combat this temptation? How can I live a life that counts for Christ? And how can I avoid the frustration of wasted days? Let's go back into our text in Ephesians 5. Paul says, look carefully. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, most of us, if you're a coffee drinker, which is 99.9% of you, the rest of you are missing out on one of the great joys of life. Um, you know, you end up with that cup that you didn't just, you, you just didn't quite finish. It's got a little bit of coffee on the bottom. When you come back to it, it's not even lukewarm. It's like somehow it got ice cold. And it's terrible, and it's just you have no use for it. There's two ways, at least two ways, that you can clean the coffee out of that cup. The first is you dump it out. Now it's an empty vessel, and it's just there waiting for something else. The other way is you can run it under the uh, faucet. I'm always trying to teach my little kids this. Like, if you run something under the faucet, it gets the other stuff that's stuck and stained and everything a little bit off that and everything. Just help your mother out a little bit. That's all I ask. Sorry, this message isn't for them. Um, and, and so you can run that under and eventually what happens that that coffee color starts diluting out, right? It starts looking like water as it runs over the rim and it starts to purge itself out. This is how I believe the Holy Spirit works in the life of believers. He doesn't just say now go stop doing all the things that are negative, nasty and hurtful. He says, I will take your willingness, even if you've got a little bit of that coffee, and I will start pouring myself into that vessel and purging out all the things that hold you back, all the things that would stain the vessel otherwise. And so I want that image to be in our minds, if you will, as we go forward with this, because the first point I want us to see out of our text that we just read is that you and I can purge foolishness from our life with the infusion of God's wisdom. God's wisdom, like that faucet of clear water, will purge out the foolishness that lives and dwells in our hearts. Paul is saying to them that you need to look carefully. This is where I'm getting the word diligence. To do this with the utmost concentration, to make this a focus and priority in your life. You've noticed, right, that a lot of times you don't get the things done that are the quiet longings of your heart or the plans of your mind until you actually zero in and concentrate on it a little bit. I can't tell you how many things. I'm, I'm kind of like a linear thinker. I, I need something like a domino to knock out of my way before I can really concentrate on the thing that was hiding behind it. I know it's there. I've got some loose formations of thoughts that I can apply to it. But once that other domino falls then I'm like, now I can invest in this thing and solve the problem. Paul says to focus with the utmost concentration on something that the Greeks thought they had in spades. Now, Paul is talking to a faithful church. He's not talking to a bunch of people with their arms folded and saying, go ahead and try to impress me, Paul. Their hearts are with Paul. Their prayers are with Paul. He's locked up in prison. They're with him in this. But they are part of a Greek culture that has prided themselves on wisdom. That is their thing. That's our moniker. We Greeks, we do philosophy, we do all these kinds of, we figured out stuff, or we at least know how to ask the questions that nobody has an answer to so we can go, see how smart we are because we ponder these things? Paul says, stop being unwise you could assume that that's quite a slap in the face. Even if you're a you're a a regenerated Greek and you're like, I've got the love of Christ in my heart, there's still, I mean, we're Americans, right? We have our things that we take pride in ourselves because of where we live and what we're about, that even though we're in Christ, if someone comes and attacks those things, we feel it. And we might have to choke it down a little bit and say, what do we do with this? Because I got a lot of flesh that wants to react right now. This is true of the Greeks at the time. Paul is writing this and he says, don't act as unwise, but act as wise. They could easily say, who do you think you're talking to? One Bible translation says that it it paraphrases this line to say, don't be simpletons anymore. I mean, these are the people that have invented wisdom. So they think simpletons. MacArthur clarifies for us, he says, The Greeks were simply playing the game of philosophy with a sort of wisdom that does not want to come to the knowledge of truth because unlike hypotheses and speculations, truth demands recognition. It demands acceptance. It demands change. It's been said if we could measure all the knowledge in the world, let's just talk about all the smarts, all the data that we can accumulate. If you go from the beginning of time And you go to 1845, if we could represent that to be an inch deep of knowledge, to show the acceleration of human knowledge, they say, if you go from 1845 to 1945, that stack would be as tall as the Washington Monument in comparison to the beginning of time up to 1845. Now, I don't even know what the stat would be from 1945 to where we are today, but doesn't it feel like every 10 years we've just blown the doors open on all the things that we can learn and discover? Now, let's ask the other side of that. Do you think we've gotten wiser as time has gone on? Of course not, right? We see the falling down. We see the breaking down. We have all this knowledge, and yet we don't see that people are any better at figuring their way out of a paper bag. Because superficial knowledge alone does not equate to wisdom. And Paul is calling us, begging us, imploring us to see that the wise person urgently pursues God rather than just passively going through life. Accumulating the knowledge of a thing is not the same with knowing how to use it. These things have to be done diligently. So he's going to give us some steps that we can take in this. He's going to tell us that we can recognize the time. To see the actual age that we are living in right now and to make the best use of that time. And that word there is for us to see it bought back for us. To see it redeemed or or rescued from loss. And I'm looking at so many faces in this room that have told me over and over again that when the light came on in their mind and they stopped living for themselves, they stopped living destructive lives and instead received the light of Christ into their heart and started living for the things of God, that it was like all of these answers started coming in, all of this this time and this way of going about your relationships and saving your money and all of these other just just solutions to problems started to come in because you weren't heading down a destructive path. There's something that happens when we give our lives to the Lord that he buys back the time and that the wise person says, how can I use these things based on the season that I'm in? It could be easy to say, um, you know, that this is a good time management passage, but he's not even talking about the chronological time order. That it is good for us to figure out how we use the hours of our day and to make them count but he wants us to recognize the age or the season that we're in. Now, we live in a day and age where YouTube has jacked us up on all kinds of conspiracy and we know what's going on and we know things that other people don't know and I've got the code to this and all that sort of stuff. And a lot of times we tell ourselves, I see the age and the season like nobody else can because I'm paying attention. We have to be careful of that because recognizing the season we're in also acknowledges that this world is not our home and that the same fixes and fears that we usually give ourselves over to are not the things that the Lord would have us preoccupied with. Those aren't great uh, reflections of the season or the time that we're in as though this is the only wicked generation that's ever existed. The Lord has called us to keep our heads above water to see the landscape that we live in and acknowledge the evil that persists in it. Yes, but not to act as though this is catching him off guard or that somehow his church won't persevere. So when we recognize the days, we see it for the evil that they present, that it, that these days present to us. I like Paul's word here for evil. It, I was looking at some of the definition of it because it's just something we throw around all the time. And I, a couple of related words or synonyms, synonyms jumped. Oh, cinnamon sounds good right now. Synonyms jumped out at me, and uh, and just recognizing that these days are diseased, or these days are vicious. A very colorful expression of the time that we live in. And Paul is calling the the person of wisdom to not be caught off guard by evil being evil. Not to be passive about it. Oh, well, what are you going to do? It's just the day we live in. That's not the warning here at all. The warning is don't be surprised by this. Don't be caught off guard by it. We've been saying it now for weeks and we'll say it as we've just come through an election season. Don't be surprised that the world wants to retain its own sense of control over its own life. Don't be surprised when the world says, who are you to tell me what to do with my own body and get the fact that they're missing another human body in their womb altogether. We shouldn't be surprised by those arguments. We don't accept them. But sometimes we act as though those without the light of Christ should see things the way that the Lord sees them just because we do. That isn't the case recognizing that these days are evil using the best use of the time that is given to us starts to help us understand what our approach can be to these situations to walk wisely, patiently, and to lead into our second point, discerningly into what the will of God is. We continue, or let me go back to something that Jeremy had brought us through in the text last week in verse eight of chapter five of Ephesians for at one time you were darkness, but now you're a light in the Lord Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try, I underline that word try. I love Paul's grace in that word. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Sometimes we think this stuff should be automatic because I want to please God. I should just know how to do it. And he's helping us understand there's a wrestling component here. There's going to be a struggle. There's going to be an, an intention to doing what we should be doing. He says, try to discern or try to understand or try to comprehend what the will of the Lord is. And, and, and try to put these things together. Proverbs tells us that people will die from a lack of sense. Now, we can easily in this day and age, say, that's right. That's all of them out there bunch of idiots lost their minds. We have that attitude, don't we? But the reality is, Lord, I'm carrying such a heavy weight on my shoulders that you've laid things out plain for me to see, and I'm having a hard time putting the puzzle pieces together. Sometimes I feel like I'm no further along. So Paul says, try to discern, try to understand what the will of the Lord is. For a long time now, we've had a movement in our church environment, not in our church, but just in the landscape of the evangelical church, that geeks out on this mystical chase, chasing of what God has for us to say, oh, the Lord's got this mysterious will for me, and I'm going to unlock the key, and I'm going to find it in my own little private uh, space and thinking, and he's going to say it in just a way to comfort me. Now, do I think God speaks to us? Yes. I'm not talking necessarily about how the Lord moves. It's our pursuit or our hunger for just having that little secret mystery or just having that private little thing that God can give me. When God is saying, no, understand what is the revealed will, the things that I've told you in plain sight. Wrestle with those things. Way, way back in the scriptures, Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. And to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. What has God revealed to us already? The wise person asks that question. And even looking not even through all of the pages of scripture. But just here in our text and our supporting passages around it. We can see that he said well we're supposed to believe in him. We're supposed to follow him. We imitate him. We're to be filled with the spirit. We need to be willing to suffer well. We're supposed to tell others about the hope that we have. We're supposed to spread our light and share the truth. We're supposed to make disciples rather than just getting anybody. Remember like convert cards back in your old days of church. Somebody would pray the prayer of salvation and we'd hold the cards up and say, we got five today. And then we'd kind of forget we have to help these people walk along a journey, grow in their understanding of the word. And the will of the Lord, the revealed will of the Lord is that we would take somebody slowly. Rather than having to have five profess, we'd have that one and we'd take them slowly to grow in their faith. These things he's made plain to us. God has already revealed more than enough to keep us from chasing fruitless mysteries. And then he says that we're to live in sobriety. He says don't get drunk with wine because that is debauchery. We can update that a little bit, I think, safely in the context of what we're studying. And he's not just picking on drinking wine. You might say, good, he picked on the thing that I don't struggle with. But that isn't what he's getting at here. He's saying do not give yourself over to anything that robs you of self-control. Wine just happened to be the fastest path to that for them at the time. It was probably the biggest social um, destruction that was going on in the time as well. But in today's day and age, we've invented all kinds of ways to fill in that blank. We've got a million distractions, don't we? We have other substances and things where our government has legalized other things that uh, that do us no good. All of those kinds of things, but even the things that aren't controversial about whether or not they should be legal or not are other things that we can hold in our hand and just scroll with our finger and just lose all sense of self-control and to kind of get on that conveyor belt of of mindless passivity. I've been trying to uh, figure out a way to kind of invite you all to join me in a, a digital media fast here at some point I'll get my thoughts together and there's some notes that you have if you got a handout on the way in I'm encouraging at least to start to that where we start to take control of the things that we just give ourselves over to in the conveyor belts that we jump on and to think through those things that, I don't sit here on my high horse saying that I don't struggle with these same things I'm hearing the same warning and the same call. How tempted am I just to get off of the movement of responsibility and, and, and the diligence of my mind and say, I just want someone to just like, like a wave and sweep me off and just move me down the stream so I don't have to think about it anymore. And, and the problem is the world around us has created brilliant ways of doing that. Effective ways and very personal ways, close to our eyeballs, in our ears. So Paul is saying, no, we live in sobriety. So if we're tracing this back, like, what is the reason why we become intoxicated anyway? Isn't it not to disconnect from reality? Something that might numb the pain or maybe, hey, I need some liquid courage. I need my personality altered or something like that. So I go to the thing that changes the reality that I find myself in. So I don't even—I either have to deal with it or I don't have to face the way that it's presenting itself to me. The reasons for the intoxication bring us to the principle that Paul is talking about. But the result is what warns us away from it. The result is that intoxication destroys our reality. There are so many people in our midst that have been bold and faithful to share their testimony of the way that, in particular, these chemical addictions have just destroyed so many facets of their of their lives. And then they try to offer that as a warning to us to say, look, don't give in to those things. Don't be passive about these things because they will come and redeem their cost from you. If we look below the surface of this warning just a little bit, I think we're going to see a connection uh going on here what paul is trying to get across the hope-filled believer doesn't need to run from reality but instead engages in it to see god do something with it so you see the difference in mindset if i'm trying to be a willing vessel and i'm trying to be used of the lord i may not be great at it may not know how but at least i'm in the ballpark of wanting to be used then i'm looking for those opportunities the, the drunken uh, mindset in the heart that's saying is like, I could just rather ditch all responsibilities. I don't want to face those realities. It's coming from two different places. If you find yourself tempted to escape reality, it's an indicator that your trust or your hope tank is getting low. You ever had that annoying friend that when you want to be negative, you want to... Brood a little bit or you want to just be in a bad mood just comes and sh- shines so much sunshine on you You're like oh turn the wattage down so let me feel this for a minute i get like that often and i'm surrounded by all you glowing christians all the time talk me out of it you know i walk into a place like this this morning and i just leaned over to pastor tom I was like do you believe we get to work here it's amazing just seeing all that the lord's doing and stuff kind of shakes my tree and gets me out of my funk from time to time. This is how Paul started this letter off in Ephesians chapter one. I'm just going to give us a sample, but remember most of chapter one was him just kind of being that shining megawatt annoyingly positive presence. Verse seven of chapter one, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, guys, he's lavished this on us in all wisdom and insight and, and stop chasing all these mysteries. He's made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan. Guess what? For the fullness of time, like we're in on the secret to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. So stop being such a sourpuss. That's what he's saying. And and we're like, oh, I just want to be angry for a little bit. I want to be down in the dumps. I want to be on the conveyor belt of passivity. And you're just invading my space. But you're so right, Paul. I've been given too much. See, he is filled with the spirit. He is letting it pour out of his mouth all of the things that he believes to be true in his heart. So he commands us to be the same. Instead of being drunk and passive and on the conveyor belt, be filled with the Spirit. And we're getting this wrong, I think, in a lot of ways as a, as a Christian culture, as we want to do whatever we want to do throughout, and I'm just going to use the measure of a week because it's what we can relate to. We want to do whatever we want throughout the measure of a week, but Sunday we expect it to charge us right up, plug that thing in like a, like an electric vehicle and we're going to be able to drive another 400 miles. Can EVs go 400 miles yet? Probably not, right? And that's what we expect. We're going to plug in and we're going to get juiced up for the rest of the week and, and that sort of thing. Now, I, like I just said to you, I come in on a Sunday morning and I'm revived as well and I'm just changed and transformed. But, but relying on you guys to do the work that the Holy Spirit wants to do in my heart on a Tuesday afternoon or on a Thursday morning is asking too much of you, quite frankly. It's you asking too much of me. Being filled with the Spirit is being controlled by Him, being yielded to Him. But we have fallen into a Christian culture that says, I want to come in and have the Holy Spirit fill me up like a tank. And when He does, I can go and do the things that will help me get through life. Sometimes even without an acknowledgement of the fact that He just filled me up. I I want to illustrate this a little bit on the the screen here. Pardon my crude um, digital artwork here, but... Just intoxicated passivity versus filled with the Spirit. An intoxicated mindset has sort of that swinging, if I could do it on monkey bars, it's almost like that kind of like, I'm just barely making it from week to week or day to day. Everything on the in-between is all the mess of my life and all the depression and all of the sin and all the failure and all that sort of stuff, and I'm just barely hanging on so it can fill me up at the top. Hey, thanks for the fill up. I'm good to go. And then it's like, oh man, I messed up again. And I'm not taking it seriously. I'm just being passive about my faith where the mindset of the filled believer is one who, yeah, I need a tune up. I, I need to be in an environment like this. I need to be in a Bible study. I need to be, have my nose in the word of God on a regular basis to get something out of it. I wouldn't deny that, but I want the Lord to be the Holy spirit that follows me throughout the day. So Tuesday afternoon, Thursday morning, Saturday night, he is working in my life that when I come here, I'm landing to share my praise. I'm coming here, and, and what you hear coming out of my mouth is coming from my heart because I've seen Him at work in my life, and I've seen Him do only what God can do in my life. Can you see the difference? There's a difference between a passive faith in Christ and one that is actively or diligently engaged. Being controlled by the Spirit being filled requires that regular, diligent yielding of yourself. Instead of, if you catch yourself saying, and I've even seen Gus do it with the worship team, we've had to change some lyrics of some of the songs because it almost seems like a, a rule of a worship song. you got to put a line in there that says, Lord, come into this presence and fill your people up. There has to be, it's almost like a, a like a legal thing. you got to clue that in every, I'm, j- I'm joking, it's not really, but it seems that way the mindset is that somehow the holy spirit's going to drop out of the corner and he's going to be like ah uh, you i'm going to move into but the bible tells us what paul's been telling us all in ephesians is that he goes with his children that he has filled them up he has given them these resources and we are called to activate those resources we are called to yield ourselves more to those resources You catch yourself, I do it too. You catch yourself saying those kinds of things like, Lord, fill me up, give me your presence. Say, you know what, Lord, I need to correct that. Just take more of me. That's really what it means to be filled by the Spirit of God. Take more of me. I am getting in my own way. I am messing up my own stuff. Have more of me. Control me, Lord. That's how we purge the coffee cup out. Wisdom replaces foolishness. Secondly, we purge selfishness from our life with thanksgiving. So how do I know if I'm really yielding myself to the Holy Spirit? If you're like me, how do I know what's my proof? He's going to spell it out. We go back to verse 18 for just a bit. He says, be filled with the spirit. How, how would we know verse 19? Cause you'd be addressing one another in Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and yes, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul says that there would be a melody that's coming out of our heart that we couldn't contain. Now Jesus has said this on the negative side. This is the part we could relate to with the drunkenness. He said that out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, all of these things. He says those come from within. And when we are drunk or when our inhibitions are reduced, that they come out. That's why we're not allowed to say it wasn't me. That was the beer talking. It was you. You just didn't have the sense about you to keep the grill closed. And so it came out anyway, right? Well, on the positive side of that, that's the same thing that happens when we are filled or controlled by the spirit of God is that those things come out of us. And it's almost hard to contain those things, too. I think it sounds a little too literal. It always cracks me up when Christians take some of these things and they're like, "Okay, so that means if I see you, I've got to speak and sing in Psalms and I got to quote scripture only and everything. And it's like, I don't think you want to do that. You know, you want to express the joy and the merriment and everything. But, you know, some of those Psalms are not the things that you want to sing to one another. They're a little uncomfortable at times. You know, you sit there and you're like, the Lord is the Lord. My God, he's my best friend. And I hope he disembowels my enemies. What? Keep some of that to yourself. I think Paul's point here is there's a common link between our growth in Christ, our control of the Spirit, and what comes out of us. That that joy, that that celebration, that that praise is there. Gus didn't see my sermon notes, but I'm convinced he did because when he was praying, he was praying for us to find hope and to emanate hope in a world that is full of hopelessness. And I think this is the direct connection between those that are given over to drunkenness or intoxication or, um, uh, you know, jumping on the conveyor belt of passivity is the it's hopelessness. It represents hopelessness versus the hope that you and I have in Christ. then he tells us that we can rehearse a praise list. He says to be thankful always and for everything. What a tall order. I said you'd get sick of the word diligence, but don't you think that's what's required? If you're going to be thankful all the time and for everything, I mean, let's just admit it. That's not natural. That's kind of gross. I don't want to do that all the time. And I certainly don't want to come across as a phony Christian who just is getting kicked in the teeth and kind of going, but I have to smile about it. I don't think that's what Paul's getting at either. You know, I got to see some video clip of of the trial for the Parkland uh massacre shooter. And uh, if you've caught any of that, like on YouTube or on TV or anything, you know, I haven't seen a whole lot of it. But I was drawn to the title of the video clip because it said that the judge was sentencing the the um, perpetrator the murderer to all of those counts. And there was 34 that she had to read out, the judge did. And uh, for the composure that she kept, because I mean, we're like, I I wasn't following the trial, but I'm eight names into it and I'm just feeling like a punch and just wanting to lose it myself in my office, just watching this. And she kept her composure and she read, and there were families in the room who were hearing that kind of that, that, that that killer was getting sentenced for taking the life of their loved one. And she was able to just read through the whole thing. And you can't watch something like that. You can't endure something like that and think that what Paul is saying is that we need to be thankful that that happened. John Stott says that being thankful for everything is praising God for being God. It's not praising him for evil. God abominates evil and we cannot praise or thank him for what he abominates. That's why thankfulness needs to be diligent. This isn't going to be a feeling that you and I have. We have a time of year where we're naturally feeling good about being thankful, and we're about to eat the stuff, and it's my favorite part of the dinner. And, and it's going to be this great time and everything, so it just comes out of us. There's, there's some feeling that comes with that, but is that going to be there in February? No, we hate February. It's going to be there in July? Is it going to be there? Diligent thankfulness intently searches for the good that God has done, that God is doing and will do in any situation. Now, I'm running out of time, so this little bit here about joyfully submitting to others, since that's not controversial or hard to do, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Let me just tee it up a little bit because we'll get into it next time, Lord willing. He says that we are to joyfully submit to others. We have this phrase that we throw around in the Christian circles called one anothering. And this is really what Paul is getting at here a general willingness to submit to one another, to look out for the needs of one another, to not make it about your agenda or winning the argument or any of that kind of stuff. Paul is laying out the case that all believers everywhere and at all times should be willing to submit to one another, regardless of their titles, regardless of their prestige, regardless of their years of experience or any of those things, but to have that general humility that says, I don't need to win all the time or I don't need to be heard the most but being willing to submit to one another. He's going to get specific on how this can play out in roles later, but for now, he's just dealing with all Christians everywhere. He's calling us to a life that is marked by mutuality or agreement, a life that would have a semblance of teamwork and surrender. Wisdom, somebody who is pursuing that wisdom, sees the benefit of this doesn't just see the opportunity based on platform or title or financial strength or any of those kinds of things just to take advantage of everyone around him But sees, you know, we're getting somewhere together and, and surrendering or submitting to the ideas or the wishes or something of somebody else is not the worst idea in the world. Even if it means you're going to lose a little bit in the moment, even as we start talking about it uncomfortably, I will admit in the realm of marriage, getting ready to lose my job here next week, but, um, not in this church, no. But to talk about it in the realm of marriage, it is not a one direction only kind of thing. That there is, an, there is even in a biblical marriage that believes in the ancient teachings of scripture, there is room for a husband to even submit to the will or the wishes of his wife from time to time. It doesn't mean that just one side holds all the cards. Why would we do this? Why is he encouraging us? Why? Because of reverence. For Christ, he's bringing fear into this. What should we fear? We should fear thinking we're much, we're we're too good for something that the greatest authority in all the universe submitted himself to. We should fear the fact that Jesus showed us submission and humility perfectly, without flaw, and that we would have the audacity to say, "Eh, "That's not what I'm called to. I'm called to lead. I'm called to win." That isn't showing reverence for Christ. But as I said, we'll get into that more next time. You might remember that uh, Jonah, the story of Jonah, the prophet from the Old Testament. So we'll wrap things up here this morning. Uh, uh, Dave took some of my time this morning, so I'm going to take some of it from Dave. (laughs) You might remember the story of Jonah from the Old Testament. If you don't know it, I would encourage you to read it. It's only four chapters. And it's a great lesson in this idea of how willing are we to do the thing that the Lord has called us to do. Because Jonah was a reluctant prophet. He was an extremely effective prophet, but he didn't want to be. Jonah hated a group of people. And he knew that God was so gracious and willing to forgive that he said, If I even go tell them about it, they're probably going to repent. And they'll probably turn their lives around. And I don't want them to. It's an incredible thing to see. It's amazing. You would think that he's reluctant because he's afraid of speaking in public or he doesn't have the words to say. We've seen those prophets before. I just don't want to do it. I don't want it to work. Jonah 4, 1-4 through tells us this. It says that it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Because I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Don't believe all the hype about the God of the Old Testament being nothing but wrath, by the way. Jonah is saying, I know that you're a loving God. I know that you're kind and gracious and you would give them another chance. Therefore, now, verse 3, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live or to see them actually get salvation is what he's saying. And the Lord said, are you sure you're angry about the right things here? You see, Jonah was controlled. He was consumed. He was drunk with hatred for the Ninevites. It controlled him. Thanks be to God that we have a better Jonah. That Jesus came and did willingly what the father had asked him to do. He humbled himself, submitted himself to the will of his father to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. Hebrews 12 tells us that we should be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He diligently, purposefully submitted to his father's will because we were the prize for him. So then the question that Paul is asking us is, are you diligently engaging in your reality or are you passively getting swept up in the cares and entertainments of this world? Are you fighting for your sobriety? What would you change in your life and even in the lives of those around you if you did this, if you pursued God's will by giving yourself to him more and more every day? Are you readying yourself to actively engage a world that is just passing by on the conveyor belt of hopelessness? Are you going to join the mission of reaching those who don't think there is any hope or rescue or or escape from this mindless activity of just taking what comes and not having any answers on how to get out of it? I'm encouraging you, I would encourage you to take some time this week, look through the notes and the handouts, because I've tried to be a little bit more specific on some things that can be done this week, as you yield yourself more over to the things of the Lord, and we get off of the passive conveyor belt and actively, diligently chase down the will of the one who made us. Amen? Would you please stand and let's pray. Lord God, I want to thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, for diligently pursuing me and every other person in this room and in the people that are beyond the the walls of this room. Knowing, Lord, that was all the motivation you needed to please your father, to rescue those who are helpless. So, Lord, I pray this morning that there, if there are those who have not encountered that love and that forgiveness, I pray, pray that they would yield themselves to it, that they would lay themselves before you, Lord, and and offer all of the sin that they've that they've given and that they've um, committed in this world, Lord, just to simply say clearly, I can't earn your favor; you're going to have to just give it to me. And I pray, Lord, that they would receive your forgiveness and your love, and you would make them new. Pray, Lord, that you would set their feet on a path towards wisdom and to have that folly and that selfishness pushed out of their cup because of your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for your love and our time together to sing the praises that are coming from our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.